What's up, Gumbo listeners? Demetrius here, dropping another episode today for you, number 105. And I have Salome Levin, co-founder and CTO of Perception Point in the virtual building. And as CTO, Salome is responsible for Perception Point's detection capabilities. He has over 15 years of experience in cybersecurity roles which span the military, academic, and enterprise worlds. He has played both offensive and defensive roles throughout his career, with his prime focus being software exploitation techniques and mitigation. So Gumbo listeners, Salome discusses some techniques on how to keep your data safe across multiple platforms, whether using containers or other cloud-native approaches and gives insights, key insights on how to keep your SaaS CRM data safe and secure in today's rising attack surface. So let's get right into the episode. Lomi, welcome to Data Protection Gumbo. How are you today? I'm doing great, Demetrius. Thanks for having me here. All right, yeah, it is fantastic to, to have you on the Data Protection Gumbo. And I am sure our audience is, is curious about what Perception Point does and what are you up to these days as well? Perception Point um, is a cybersecurity startup, which I uh, co-founded six years ago. We deal with protection, anything that has, uh, protecting any content that enters the organization, the enterprise, um, from any channel. So when we talk about channel, I mean email security. I mean uh, collaboration channels, such as uh, Box, Dropbox, OneDrive, SharePoint, G Suite, that kind of stuff. Um, so the essence is a threat detection platform, um, and we can dive into the technology after that. Um, I've been up to uh, researching mainly cybersecurity-related uh, vulnerabilities in software, um, looking at uh, for for exploits, uh, that kind of um, that kind of stuff. Um, and a lot of DevOps, <laughs> a okay. lot of DevOps actually recently that have to do with uh, things uh, internally in the company. But yeah. Okay, so I'm I'm just curious. So what what are some of the the DevOps things that that you've been up to? Because I'm I'm sort of familiar with the CI/CD pipeline and you know different workflows and making sure that your APIs are uh, able to you know integrate in and you know that's the the typical point of entry for integrations. So what what are some of the the DevOps? Things that, that you've been working on lately, or um, what, what's important that you think the Gumbo listeners need to know right now, something particular that you're working on from a DevOps perspective? Today, uh, when we describe DevOps, we're looking at the way we package um, the software and deliver it. Um, so basically, we'll be doing uh, Kubernetes, um, which runs containers or pods, uh, and that's how you can scale your application. So First of all, when you're building an application today, you need to run to know how to use these tools in order to scale it properly. So that would be something that I would recommend is if you're still writing code that isn't containerized, um, please look at, please go that way. Um, specifically, what I was doing is I was doing exactly that. I was turning a, an internal service that, that um, we have inside the company uh, was written with in Python with simple scripting. It li- literally looked like a script like a scripted um, service, uh, which ran on a AWS instance. And what I did is I ported it to um, container to to be scalable, basically, because mm, what okay. it, yeah, so the, um, the serve, so you always have to look at 
um, is the service that you're doing, what is it more IO bound or CPU bound? You know, you have to understand the, the requirements of your software, basically how it's going to be working. So this one is a CPU bound um, process, which uh, wasn't really utilizing, it wasn't scaling properly. Um, so what I did is I isolated the worker, the CPU intense um, software into a container and that's that service um, I can scale now and I and I and I uh, integrated a Redis queue into the service so that we can scale infinite that's how we do these kind of things today and on the way I got to try out new uh, Python uh, the latest bleeding edge Python version with um, uh, the latest uh, API writing um, Python framework the one that I chose was uh, fast API highly recommended so, and um, it was very, it was like very interesting. And yeah, actually, I just finished the core thing today and uh, I'll be testing it out soon. Okay. So you, you mentioned Kubernetes and microservices and containers. What, what specifically, when you're dealing with microservices and Kubernetes and containers and Docker, maybe even, like what's the number one security component when you are dealing with microservices that, you know, Gumbo listeners probably need to be aware of if they're, considering, you know, moving to a microservices type architecture? Um, I would look at the, the, when we say attack surface analysis, so you want to see where you're going to be exposed. So you need to look at a Kubernetes cluster, which are usually hosted on either self-hosted or GCP, AWS, Azure. Uh, you need to know how to run and mm -hmm. define the network properly. Um, so there's... Um, uh, you need to understand that what services or what ports basically you're exposing to the internet. Um, I would recommend keep it minimal. Um, usually, if you're writing an API, which is usually the case today, um, you need to know that only the ports that are related to the API are exposed. Um, and then now we have to look at the actual service that's running inside the container. So what is the operating system that you're running in the container? So what version did you choose as a base image? Um, I was actually running through the things I saw. I'm really fresh to this, is, <laughs> so uh, you ha you have. Um, okay. I mean, you yeah. have the the basic the Ubuntu um, to run inside CentOS, um, which looks nice. And I really liked um, something that's called Alpine because it's very very slim. It's very small, very minimum. Mm. And I actually found a GitHub repository of um, a Belgian company. I'm not sure uh, their name, uh, but they called it uh, Hardening. Alpine, Iron Alpine, maybe they called it, uh, which goes through the operating system, the the stripped operating system called Alpine, and further removes more tools that you don't need that will be in there because and any directories and and, and it goes through a whole hardening process of the Linux container. Mm, why, okay. But why, why do we do this? The reason we do this so is that if you know. Um, we, you always have to assume that you might have a vulnerability in software that you that you that you write. Um, so assuming, God forbid, right, you have a vulnerability in your product, an attacker um, is able to exploit this vulnerability and take over that specific container. Now you want to make his life hard. You don't want to give him the tools that are already inside there, so he can already start working out of that box. And then then what he has to do is he has to laterally move to the other boxes and services in your Kubernetes uh, cluster. And, and his aim is also to get out of the cluster to a persistent area so that where he can control, um, I mean, being persistent in a, in a service gives him 
infinite time to work and then he can start looking for your real crown jewels what we call um, so you want to make that initial breach as minimum and contained as possible there's a lot of ways of doing it a lot of cybersecurity companies that deal with this um, but there's also best best practices for hygiene of containers so so yeah mm, so what okay. I was talking about now is you got to reduce it um, the attack surface and reduce the operating the, the ease of operation of an of a potential attacker in um, once he lands uh, okay okay yeah so this this moves us perfectly in into the next question and you know I, I think it was brilliant what you just mentioned because I've never heard of Alpine and when, when you when you're talking coding and um, writing writing code you know it's just an area that I haven't dug into but I love to hear individuals uh, provide details around what they're using, you know, what types of uh, methods that they're using in order to, you know, get things done. So uh, what I want to find out is, I guess, what are your recommendations around, you know, multi-factor, you know, using multi-factor authentication and this thing that that's called zero trust architecture, which it, it sounds weird, but I know it's a, it's an entire thing and it's just not one thing there's multiple pieces and components that fit into it and also this term immutability a lot of people are using it nowadays and i think people are just using it more so well some people are using it more as a marketing term um and there's different definitions of immutability as well so multi-factor authentication zero trust architecture and immutability what, what are your recommendations around those things Amazing. So immutability, I would assume, I'm not really um, familiar with the marketing aspect of it, but I would assume it's the whole fact that the Docker container is um, created and then it is immutable from that point onwards and, um, in, in, in production. So you don't want, you, you know how your file system and your files that you coded and all the services are run, how they should look. And then if they're not, if they're changed, you already have a sign of breach or a sign of something that's different. So I guess in, um, if immutability is broken, therefore, I would assume something has gone wrong. Now, zero trust is, uh, is a beautiful concept that, that means that every, every time a service or a computer or a human talks to each other, um, they're re-authenticated. We don't trust anything behind. There's no perimeter anymore. There's no areas of uh, behind closed doors. We can do whatever we want. No. Anytime, let's say you have a server inside your organization, you treat it as if it's sitting on the internet. Mm -hmm. So therefore, if someone inside the organization, let's say an, um, an SSH server, right, and someone wants to, wants to talk to the SSH server, you have to re-authenticate with um, the zero trust infrastructure that's in place. Now, I know you said there's a lot of ways of looking at zero trust. So I guess this is the, um, the implementations can vary between if it's a server, right, just a Linux server, hosting a, an SSH service. So you have a zero trust um, uh, service that sits on top of the SSH service, basically the authentication layer. But you can also have zero trust probably um, re-authentication on your SaaS products. Um, or what else can we have? Um, servers, I mean, we, uh, just like random servers inside your organization or in the cloud as well. So then you need an, uh, basically a broker or an authentication manager that does the zero trust yeah. On the session. So every session that's now created between a web, for instance, a web server to a database, uh, an administrator to an SSA, SSA into a server, um, 
no one trusts each other. The reason this happened was that um, if you had your, let's say, your Kubernetes platform, or back in the day when you had just servers sitting in a data center, if one server was breached, then the lateral movement was very, very easy, right? Again, if, if, if we're connecting to what we said beforehand. Now, the multi-factor comes in when, when you say, okay, how are you authenticating the sessions? Um, what, a password? A, um, a, a cell phone, uh, you know, a little pop-up in your phone? An SMS? There's a lot of ways, and I think MFA is, is the right way to go. All of the above. <laughs> you need all of the above to do that. Um, so that you want to authenticate the person that is actual is actually the person. Attackers are getting really, really um, bypassing a lot of the, the two-factor authentications by, let's say, attacking first your phone and then seeing the message as it comes in, and then they know the challenge. Yeah, I, I was going to mention that because my, my brother, um, you know, he actually had an issue. I don't know what he was doing, but he got hacked, and literally they stole his cell phone, and I think they recloned his sim card or chip or something so they had they rerouted his cell phone to their device got the multi-factor authentication code i mean these were some sophisticated you know people i didn't even know they could do that yeah so, so sim cloning right yeah, yeah that's yeah that's one thing so then also that i mean if we're looking at two-factor then an mfa a multi-factor would have also questioned your google account and then they would have had to breach another layer in the stack the stack of layers right so the GPRS um, SIM cloning is one layer, so SMSs. But then if, if we would talk about more application and session layers, um, specifically Google sessions, so then they would have also had to. So cloning your phone wouldn't have been enough. They would have had to do another action, and then might, you might have picked it up on the way. Um, all we want to do is make it harder and raise the bars for the attackers and, and make their process of uh, cloning you or, or, or impersonating you harder. That's that's the game in in cybersecurity. Okay, and and are you seeing anything around ransomware? That there's a lot of talk around ransomware these days, and it's impacting you know multiple industries: the healthcare industry, pharmaceuticals, education. Literally, there there's no industry untouched with with ransomware. Very much um, so. So yeah, so I guess you know how do how do new new security risks like ransomware, uh, I guess change how customers should should really be thinking about, let's say, disaster recovery? So obviously, um, you need to have a, uh, let's say, um, according, assuming that you've been breached, you need to be able to recover your data if it's been encrypted from underneath your feet. Uh, and these are, um, I'm sure, Dimitris, you can share much more than I can on this aspect, <laughs> but uh, um, it has to be done with, um, with a, uh, a cycle, right? Uh, as like we have the SDL, the, the security um, software development lifecycle for from a security perspective, you need also a data hygiene of backup and recovery in your organization. You need to know how um, the where the data flows and where your crown jewels are, and how to recover it periodically. Um, and then you know you'll have the month or the dailies, and then you need a cold storage. You need to separate it away from your organization in case that these. I mean, when these guys work. The ransomware groups I'm talking about—they're um, looking for your backups to, to so that you won't have leverage upon them and be able to just flick them off your shoulder. Um, so in order for their deal to go through, um, they're going to look for your backups. So you need them not connected to your network. Um, there's some cool concepts of one-directional network connections. So then, um, if you 
I'm just throwing this out there, right? So if you have your backup um, organized into one place, like let's say a server in your organization, you run it through a one directional, one directionally to a another server that's on the other end of that um, one directional connection, so that the attackers uh, mm. for sure can't get to. Okay, so I, I guess they're they're stuck in that one system. They can't. They can go in, but they can't come out. Exactly, or and they can't issue. They can only attack. Um, copy data in there, they can't issue any commands to delete your mm -hmm. okay. um, backups. And then you also have the, the, the cold storage, right? So actually hard drives that you put on the desk somewhere or in a safe, obviously, sorry, <laughs> inside a safe. <laughs> they're, they're got it, think. got it, got it. Yeah, let, let's let's talk a little bit about cloud. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping you'll be able to share your perspective here. Why do, why do you think companies forget some of the best practices and and develop, you mentioned earlier, hygiene, like data hygiene. So some companies are developing bad data protection habits, like when they move to the public cloud, like leaving permissions open on buckets. And there's a lot of, lot of stories out there and some people are not even aware that they have systems you know, open uh, to the internet when they move to the cloud. And some of them think that their data is automatically protected if they're in the cloud, like a SaaS product or something. What, what do you think about that? What, what are your, what's your perspective there? So for sure, the security paradigm holds also for the cloud. Um, in the end of the day, a cloud is just someone else's computer <laughs> that you're mm -hmm. renting. That you're renting. Um, and you are in charge of the security. And what I like saying, the security posture um, of your cloud um, there's a lot of good tools out there that that do security posture analysis where they look at the policies instated in your cloud configuration in case exactly of that um, scenario that you said that someone left a bucket by mistake uh, exposed to the internet um, usually the cloud vendors do a very good job at the default settings being pretty secure and then it's the developers well or the um, the, the it that work with the cloud um, sometimes they see uh, that things don't flow properly for them and because the cloud is pretty new from an IT's perspective, the best practices aren't really instated and known inside the IT community. So sometimes they can make a mistake without actually knowing that they're making a mistake. Um, so I think as time goes on, people already say, no, no, oh, okay, I know how to configure that um, EC2 instance or that bucket properly. Don't do it this way, do it that way. And maybe even I would recommend before you go and change policies and stuff, read the manual, as we say, <laughs> and see what the vendor says, and maybe even look at a couple of YouTube, uh, YouTube videos and see what other uh, people are doing online in order to kind of get a feel for um, what it needs to, how it kind of needs to look at, look like. And then obviously you need to take in your own business cons um, flow considerations in order to get it at the right place where you want it to be. So also secure, but also workable for your, secure, uh, for your needs. Okay. Yeah. Th thank you for that, Slomi. I appreciate that. Um, also, let, let's shift maybe to a higher level, just speaking to, let's say, a CIO, CTO, such as yourself. If, if you were speaking to someone in your position, you know, that was sitting higher up in an IT organization and not every day they, they're thinking about the same thing that an administrator or an engineer would be thinking about. So sometimes there's not as much visibility sitting at that higher level. And you you depend on your people or your direct report to keep you informed. So what, what advice do you have for CTOs and CIOs right now 
we're coming out of the pandemic. A lot of people are getting vaccinated and security is it's it's a conversation that everyone should be having. So what specifically would you like to say to a CIO or a CTO right now as it concerns to security and protecting your data? Well, so I would like to apply a concept that I've been thinking of um, and I myself in our my organization is that we have zero trust on anything or any sessions that happening in our organization. We also need to zero trust the content that's coming into the organization. So we have flows that run through, you know, people run, working on their computers, um, they, they move a file from here to there and stuff like that. So you need to know that the, uh, that the actions are authenticated, but you also need to know that data that's coming in from the outside is validated and safe and doesn't contain any malicious content. And that means any link, any file, and uh, we've also been seeing in Perception Point a lot of emails that they don't even contain links or, or files. They're just in themselves malicious because they're impersonating an someone else so but i'm just talking about you know like the data itself that's coming in okay um and today with the enterprises workloads they need to be uh sanitizing information data that comes in and and to um to know that it's safe um now when when you work with as as um like you're saying the c-levels they work with their people and, and they trust them obviously but they need to have a process in state that um, that is validate, continuously validating their posture, like we spoke about before, the security posture. And um, they need to know that these processes work and are effective for, for their organization. Essentially, their job is to set up those processes because it's customized for that specific organization to make sure that the, from a perspective, a security perspective, it's, um, the hygiene is clean. <laughs> I mean, we have compliance uh, so, you know, we adhere to SOC 2, HIPAA, GDPR. We need to know that we're compliant with these things. And we go through um, yearly checks uh, that have to do with that. And apart from that, we have um, um, vulnerability assessments that we do quarterly, yearly, and ongoingly um, all the time in order to see that everything is, is in its place and that we're, we're okay from a security perspective. And then we have the third thing, which is the actual vendors that you use for your security products. So that means um, if you're using SaaS products, you need to know that um, the authentication with them is done properly and that the content that is hosted on these SaaS products isn't going to harm the computers of your organization, right? Um, and we need to know, uh, so, so the vendors themselves, you need to look at all those aspects. And then if you're, if you're, if you're writing code, Right, so if you're a writing code enterprise, you also need to know that your CI/CD, your software development lifecycle, also has a security aspect to it, and that's what we've uh, been seeing lately in the industry. Not lately, but it's come up is DevSecOps, right? So the Dev the DevOps people that do the security aspect of your CI/CD pipeline. Um, really cool stuff. You have a container scanning to see and vulnerability. Um, you want to see that the packages that you're using, so open source or third parties or stuff that you've actually written yourself has gone through a security assessment and isn't vulnerable to any, uh, there are no vulnerabilities there. And if there are, you want to know that they're not exposed um, outwards to, wow. towards the world. That, that's some, some, some great feedback there. I um, really appreciate you sharing that. And 
I'm, I'm hoping all the CIOs and CTOs listening that that you you get some takeaways from that. Um, one, one more question before before we we start closing out here is, you know, how, how do you view artificial intelligence and, and machine learning today? You know, what, what are you seeing? Do you think that's going to continue as a trend in the future? And how is that? Is that going to play a role in, in security? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> um, I think I really, really like ML um, because uh, as opposed to 30 years ago or in the 80s when they tried to bring it in, it didn't really hold. Recently, it's exploded. Uh, we've seen GPT-3 speak to people on Reddit, which was incredible. People were like, wow, is a robot actually talking to us? And it really looked amazing. So the NLP um, has really exploded and, and showing really promising things. We're not, we haven't passed the Turing test yet, but it feels like we're, we're pretty close. But from a security side, uh, ML can be used in every place. Um, so I've seen personally areas in cybersecurity where it has failed because cyber, in cybersecurity, there is a problem that you have a lot, a lot of Bay 9 data, but malicious data, you don't have a lot of. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what's Bay 9? Bay nine data is non malicious data. Oh, so, benign. Yeah, but oh, benign. Sorry. Got it. Got it. No, 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 no. <laughs> I get it. Clean data. <laughs> Let's call it clean data, right? So okay. So in NML, you need to have or artificial intelligence, machine learning, you need to have a big data set for each kind of um, problem because you want to be able to build the right classifier for that. But inherently, inherently, ninety nine point seven percent of the data is clean. And three and zero point three percent of the data is malicious. So you're right. You already have a problem when you want to build a classifier. Therefore, you need to pick your problems very clearly when you build a cybersecurity solution that's based on ML. You need to be able to isolate the problem so that the problem at the hand has a fifty-fifty data set. Okay, and that's a hard problem. Um, I can give an example where I haven't seen it work. Um, in syscalls and operating systems, when you want to develop a antivirus or a um, sandbox that knows how to uh, associate to uh, classify a malicious file for, based on its interaction with the operating system, based on data that is extracted from syscalls, that is going to be a hard problem. <laughs> uh, just from my experience, um, and so actually we've done we've done something similar in Perception Point. We have we have classified information based on syscalls, but then in our in a sandbox that we developed in house, but we used ML to reduce the false positive count. So we didn't use it to classify if something is bad or good. We just used it as once something is bad or good, then we have a correct 50-50 data of saying, wait a minute, those um, those ones that you said are bad need to be. We can reduce the noise using um, a machine uh, learning uh, model. Uh, now we've seen with a pretty good efficacy, so we did remove uh, a lot of false positives there. But that's just from my personal aspect. There have been other um, solutions in cybersecurity that have worked. Um, I think what would be a good one? Maybe machine learning on API calls. You can see that if an API, um, the way it looks, and you learn the parameters using a model, and then once the attacker um, diverts from the model that you built, you can say that okay, we've identified something. That, that doesn't look good, and, and therefore the model should tell us about it. Um, the, the, the problem in cybersecurity is that your adversary is always trying to find a way around 
the the classification that you've done if it's um a custom based classification or an ml ml based classification your adversary is always trying to break the boundaries so therefore you need to know if the f the false positive that you have in your machine learning algorithm if it's a true positive or a false negative and, and it, it those are hard problems um i think ml and ai is is doing amazing work in uh image processing natural language processing but when it comes to cybersecurity specifically you need to see you need to learn how to to discern if it's if you're being hoaxed into uh an ml based uh product which a lot of people are are playing with that we can really see from a marketing perspective it's really being used a lot to an actual solution to a real problem okay and just just rolling into the final question here, I'm I'm really curious to ask you this question. I, I've just started, you know, really getting into CRM apps, and and I I, I want to get your opinion here. What are some What are some of the content based type attacks that that you you're seeing specifically in CRM apps? I don't know if there are any. Hundred percent. Yeah, it's, um, that's actually a cool question. Salesforce is a CRM, correct? It and is. They have, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So we've seen some really interesting attacks coming through there. Basically, the attackers will open a ticket to the, the the enterprise that uses Salesforce. And because we haven't seen any filtering systems instated in um, and integrated with Salesforce, so none of the attachments such as Excel spreadsheets or Word documents are filtered. And we saw um, th that specific um, Excel, it was an Excel spreadsheet abusing uh, macro version 4 um, macros, which was fascinating because it had a anti-sandbox check inside. So the little, the, the malicious code checked if speakers were attached to the device before delivering the malicious payload. So they, and virtual machines or sandboxes that detonate the, t the content ahead of time, they usually don't have speakers configured with them because it's a virtual machine sitting in the cloud somewhere. So that was an evasion technique that the bad guys utilize in order to understand if they're running on a real person's computer or a fake computer. So it was really, really cool. We saw that coming through a Salesforce, um, Salesforce channel, uh, which we do have an integration for, by the way. We, we went for all the HubSpot, Salesforce, CRM-based, and service-giving-based um, uh, um, services. So yeah, so wow. these things are real. We, we've seen them. I may have to talk to you a little bit uh, um, offline about that because <laughs> I've never thought of anything like that, like opening up a false ticket. Like how do they even get access to Salesforce at their particular, I guess their instances or their orgs, right? You know, I, I guess that's a whole nother conversation, how they got access to to that information. Maybe someone clicked on, on, on something. I, I would think when you have like the free trial in your site. So mm -hmm. it says, oh, here's a free trial. Um, here, give your information and anything that you want to attach maybe to tell our sales rep to contact you. Wow. And that's, that's I would just guess that. I don't know in this particular account, I don't know how it got in. That is crazy. Um, yeah. I also know that automated emails in enterprises, so you have like the mm -hmm. support at enterprise.com will be converted into a Salesforce ticket. Mm -hmm. um, but then in that case, I mean, I would expect there an email solution to be in, an email security solution to be filtering that data. So maybe that's a less good example. Okay. Um, yeah, it has to be some some kind of app that the people had 
facing the internet that gave a form. Got that, it. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Well, um, Salome, uh, it's it's been wonderful having you on. I've learned a lot. You know, I, I really would like to get you on again sometime in the future. And also, before I let you go, is there uh, a way that you would like Gumbo listeners to maybe reach out to you on social media, maybe Twitter, LinkedIn? With pleasure, of course. Yeah. Um, directly to me, uh, Shlomi at perception-point.io, or you can uh, use my Twitter handle, which is Shlemo. <laughs> I'm gonna have to write this down. Um, I'll send it to you after. Uh, actually, we just posted on the, our LinkedIn, uh, our um, and on LinkedIn, of course, Shlomi Levine. Um, yeah, so so just directly to me. More than happy to consult on any security posture related things. Um, if you're having any uh, concerns or something about how to implement something, always happy to give my uh, two cents about cybersecurity related things. Okay, well. I really appreciate you appearing on Data Protection Gumbo, Slomi. So thank you so much. And until next time. Yeah, pleasure, Demetrius. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Data Protection Gumbo. Please follow us on Twitter at DPG Podcast and join our Backup and Recovery Professionals LinkedIn group. Just search Backup and Recovery Professionals on LinkedIn and you will find the group. And until next time, Gumbo listeners, have a fantastic week week.